Hi, I'm Bill Crystal. Welcome back to Conversations. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Christina Summers, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, former philosophy professor, uh, once a philosophy professor, always a philosophy <laughs> professor, right? Uh, author of many important works, including most recently, uh, Freedom Feminism, and of course, a star of a wonderful series of YouTube videos, The Factual Feminist. Yes. So we'll talk about feminism in, in a minute, but I'm, I thought maybe we'd begin by just I was minding my own business one day a few a couple of months ago, I guess, and suddenly I'm looking online and the, you're the subject of a huge controversy. You're speaking at Oberlin and people are outraged. And what I was know. that? What was that it all? Was, what was that all about? I am still trying to figure it out. I have been lecturing on college campuses for years, m more years than I care to remember, and uh, it's often controversial. Young women come to spar and debate because I, I'm a moderate feminist and I take exception to some of the eccentricities on the campus and that, that has created controversy. Well, at Oberlin, they didn't come to debate. They, first of all, they said that I was going to give them PTSD, and they organized a safe space, a safe room, where young women could flee if what my arguments created, you know, led to panic attacks. What was and, the and terrifying topic you were discussing? I, I, was I had been invited by a small group of the Libertarians and Republicans of Oberlin, and I was just going to talk about the need for reforming feminism. However, the very idea that I was questioning sacred tenets of the religion of feminism uh, was apparently triggering. They, 30 young women fled to a safe room. 30 young women and a dog. I triggered a dog. I feel bad about that. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> they literally what, so they showed up. How does it work? So you're giving a talk and they show up and then they throw their hands up. Well, they did a number of things. First of all, there were some ferocious Facebook uh, debates about my uh, coming to campus, and it was interesting because, it, and this happened at uh, Georgetown as well, the administration became so concerned about these young women and what they were saying on Facebook about their safety, they became concerned about my f safety, and for the first time, I had armed guards Jeez. on a campus for being a moderate feminist and recommending some reforms. Uh, and questioning statistics. They didn't like that, that I questioned the statistics on women's victimization. So they, now that was that were just one thing, to have the safe spaces. Um, they had two young women that gave a little a talk. I wasn't even allowed in the room. And the room, of course, was very large because there had been so much controversy. They, it attracted interest. They would have been better off ignoring me. But they created all of this interest, so it was a huge room. And I entered after they'd been given a kind of... Uh, uh, talk by um, these two sort of therapeutic activists who told them, you know, yeah. not to be upset. And then the first three rows were young women with red duct tape uh, on their mouths. And I, I don't know why. They, and they stayed that way throughout the lecture. <laughs> with these. And then everybody with protest signs, and I was heckled and jeered. It was funny. However, there was one moment where a, a, f um, a very lovely philosophy professor just sort of stood up and urged the crowd to be civil and and he was told to be quiet and sit down it was it was a mob so here we are at Oberlin College with these students who were supposed you know among the most privileged who are supposed to be getting a good education and they, this is how they acted out and then to behave that way to a to, to me all right a controversial speaker but their own professor it was it was sad, a sad spectacle yeah, how bad? Or I mean, I myself have always had a slightly, I don't know, can't take it seriously attitude towards this. And I've spoken on many, many campuses, been heckled a few times. I guess attacked once by a 
banana cream pie. Um, that's oh not my. So, well, that's not so funny. I mean, that's funny also, but in a certain way, you no, think no, of what if it were something more, you know, yeah. serious that could hurt you. But uh, nothing happened, of course. But but uh, yeah, what what about the campuses? I mean, you've taught at, uh, at in colleges and universities, and then as you say, spoken to a million of them as a prominent. Uh, public intellectual on many topics, really, uh, boys, feminism. Um, how bad is it? I mean, what do you think, and how much effect is it having on young people, and how much is it stifling speech and thought? I mean, what, what's your take I on it? I would say that right now, on many campuses, probably not all, but in many, and especially small liberal arts colleges, the more elite the university, the more likely this is happening. I think it's a, a contagion of hysteria. And I don't use those words lightly, because in the past, I always thought it was eccentric, it was strange. They were, these young women were a little, um, you know, carried away. This is more than carried away. And uh, uh, it's not all the students, of course, but a sort of critical mass of young women and some young men uh, believe that students at a place like Swarthmore or Wesleyan, Bard College, Columbia University, that they are, uh, the women are captive to this tyrannical, patriarchal, oppressive, violent culture, and they aren't going to take it. But on the other hand, they've been so injured and traumatized that a lot of effort goes into ministering to their their various afflictions. And so they, in the, this was described in the New York Times at Brown University, they organized a debate <clears throat> And I think a libertarian feminist who questions some of the victim statistics was going to debate a, a feminist who believes in them. Well, just the idea of having a debate was too much for the Brown students. And with the full approval of the president, they organized a safe room that came equipped with, uh, they, they played tapes of frolicking puppy dogs, and they had bubbles and, and games. It was so infantilizing. This is what feminism has come to? It's madness. Well, let's talk. Well, how did feminism, since you've written about this for <laughs> How a did long it time. happen? Yeah, how did this happen? Well, it I, really is it, shocking, actually. I tried to warn people that something was amiss many years ago. Uh, it was uh, in the late 80s. I was teaching philosophy, and the chair of my department said, Well, why don't you teach feminist theory? And at the time, I didn't. Where was this? At Clark the University. Clark. Oh. I sent away for the textbooks, and I thought, Okay, I'm a feminist and um, a philosopher. I assumed when I sent away for the texts that it would be like other philosophy textbooks, that this feminist theory text would be the best that was thought and said, you know, about issues that concern women. So really good arguments for and against affirmative action or surrogate motherhood or abortion and so forth, because I, I just thought it was a sacred commandment of, of college teaching, thou shalt teach both sides of the argument. And that's what I had always done. I never saw the classroom as a place for me to pass along my beliefs, particular beliefs to students, but to give them uh, the tools to, to make decisions themselves. These textbooks shocked me. They were, uh, a f uh, first of all, they were putting forward something that looked to me as a philosopher, it looked to me as a conspiracy theory about the patriarchy. And most of the, the selections were mutually reinforcing. Rather than real debate, you just had, uh, it, it, it seemed like propaganda. And Naively, I thought, well, this is a mistake. And I sent away for more, and I became concerned. And I went to the American Philosophical Association and gave a paper on, uh, you know, what's gone wrong with feminist theory. Now, typically, when you go to the APA, it's contentious, and, uh, the, you know, everyone in the audience tries to find fault with what you say. I was prepared for that. 
But then you go out for drinks. <laughs> we did not go out for drinks. And I was not prepared for people hissing and booing and, and stamping their feet. It was, I was, and, and that evening I was excommunicated from a religion I didn't even know existed. And I'll tell you before that, uh, as a woman teaching philosophy, my articles were sometimes included in, in women's anthologies and I was invited to review papers for feminist journals. After that, it all stopped. I became a, an enemy. It was very alarming to me. And, and this is because of your thought and, because of, and argument, not because of you discriminated against a I didn't do it. I just or something know, ridiculous I, like that. This was, this was shocking. And um, I wrote about it, and I wrote about some other things, and then the Atlantic Monthly commissioned me to write a paper about feminist theory and women's studies. I was not an authority on this, except that I had encountered something troubling. Num a lot of things about it were troubling, not just the conspiracy theories, the denigration of men. It was almost as if women are from Venus, men are from hell. And this <laughs> seemed to be running through the books. And then there were statistics to prop up this very grim worldview, and they were ludicrous. At first, uh, when I was writing the Atlantic piece, I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll hire a statistician to look at these. I didn't need a statistician. These studies were preposterous claiming that, you know, the AAUW had a study that girls have a massive loss of self-esteem, and this was supposed to be a, an, an American tragedy, they called it. And I called up some psychologists who, who had not come upon any such affliction, and all kids sort of go up and down at adolescence. There was nothing remarkable going on with girls, and yet they had done this ridiculous specious study. There were other statistics I questioned. So it just seemed to me at the, at the heart of feminist theory was a body of egregiously false information. And then the twisted theories, it was almost as if they took Karl Marx and crossed out class and put gender. It was tedious, and people were taking it seriously. Well, as you know, we kind of had a culture war in the 90s, which many of us felt we won because we did. So we what, this article appeared in The Atlantic? I'm trying to remember. Actually, interestingly enough, a version of it ended up in The New Republic because the feminist philosophers found out that I was writing it and they organized a campaign to persuade The Atlantic not to publish it and frightened them. And then the Chronicle of Higher Education came to do a piece about this dangerous woman. And actually, it turned out to be very sympathetic. And uh, the the uh, women philosophers were furious because they looked like censors and and uh, just trying to silence a woman who had some disagreements with them. They came off badly. But this is but this so this started a long time ago, and this is the early nineties or yeah. Well, it was the, yeah the early nineties. Yeah. So that's and then uh, after the, when I was researching the paper for the Atlantic. Uh, which ended up in the New Republic, and it ended up being Who Stole Feminism. I mean, it was the research so that, the that led the book, to the yeah. book Who Stole Feminism. So then I learned more and more, and I went to the National Women's Studies Association in 1992, and I took my sister with me, um, who's a psychologist, and she found it clinically interesting, <laughs> uh, because even then you saw the identity politics spinning out of control. It was, it was the whole, this was a, a, an academic conference, uh, and, but it was all about our, grievance, our grievances and our healing needs. And we were supposed to break down in groups based, down, based on our oppression identity. So there was a group for Jewish women, Asian women, black women, 
overweight women, none of the groups proved stable. They, the, everybody was fighting because they're, then the gay and the gay black women and the, you know, wanted to separate and, and the gay uh, Jewish women wanted to separate. They, and, and then there was an eruption from a group of women who were furious at all of us because they had been marginalized, women with allergies. They had a list of demands that next year no one would bring clothes that were dry cleaned and uh, wear perfume and so forth. And then the eco-feminists were furious because they were serving cream with the coffee. It was, my sister said, it's like, there, it's, it's a conference of borderline personalities. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, you're, it's, just, it's just, you know, nervous, <laughs> overwrought feminists. Because by then I was sort of used to it. But f through my sister's eyes, I could see the madness. So it was there. But it's almost as if today when I go to Oberlin or, or Georgetown or the same thing, similar thing happened at UCLA. Uh, what I, I think these are like the, the daughters of those women who were at, at that Austin conference. So they passed that along through their classrooms, these gender scholars. And so, and you are a feminist. I mean, not that one has to be, and it would be legitimate to criticize it, I suppose, you know, sort of in toto, but you, that's not your position, as I understand it, this right? Is, I've yeah. always defended equity feminism. Right. The, the, the basic so explain, enlightenment, explain, classical feminism, that difference. women are the equal to men, and we deserve the same rights and opportunities and dignity and freedom. Everything Mary Wollstonecraft wanted, and then John Stuart Mill and Susan B. Anthony, down to the, the, the second wave of feminism. The early days, uh, there were actually conservatives and liberals who worked together. If you look at the Equal Pay Act and many of the Supreme Court rulings, it was conservative courts where women won some of the greatest victories. The basic rights uh, that had, had, you know, had, had been problematic for women, where you were, there were just sort of, you could be arbitrarily fired because you got pregnant, or if you were married, that, that sort of thing. Those were. Yeah pushed out. So I, of course I believe in that. I think it's a great American success story, something to be proud of. But uh, today, and I've been arguing this since I went to that feminist conference or when I read those textbooks, I've been arguing this is not what feminism should be. It's not what it's about. And for that, I am considered <laughs> dangerous. Is <laughs> there a moment, just looking at the history of feminism, is there a moment where you think it decisively goes off the rails. There's a kind of key juncture where equity feminism is replaced by... I think it was the battle over the ERA. Um, because in many ways, oh, oh, but again, everyone wanted to pass. There was no way the ERA wasn't going to pass. It had gone through states and, and conservatives and liberals. Several Republican presidents supported it. Phyllis Schlafly uh, was someone, I think, called her from a bookstore or something and said, come and debate the ERA, and she didn't know much about it. She said, well, I don't know what I think of it. Let me debate. She was more interested in uh, arms control yeah. and, and so forth. And uh, she read about it, and she had this idea that uh, these women were not simply, it wasn't simply about equality, that they wanted to erase the sex difference. And so things like girls' schools and boys' schools wouldn't be allowed, or you'd have women in combat. With She thought they were going to do that, and uh, so she started debating them. And this is the mid-70s, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and they, were, they, they, they said, yes, that's, that's what we want to do. So it, it had widespread support because people, I think a lot of people, were equity feminists and thought, let's just, you know, it was almost a, a, a gesture of respect and regard for women and acknowledgement of women's equality. But the, there were hardline feminists who really were much more ambitious. And I think that's what Phyllis Schlafly showed and then as uh, she would go and tell women, and it was, she, she launched one of the greatest sort of grassroots campaign uh, in, in, in American history 
uh, because she would get groups of women to look at what it would mean and women who thought maybe they were in favor of it and then they would see what it would mean to American society and they started to turn against it and then it went backwards. And, and I mean, the votes, people started rescinding their votes or, or and then it started to lose. So I think, so what happened is the, the feminists who pushed it and who had a, a very ambitious agenda were so bitter and so angry and they felt they'd been let down. Um, but you know, if you go back, you'll see that they could have passed it. There was once a debate on firing line between, uh, I guess it was Phyllis Schlafly and uh, a, a, someone from now. And you could tell that Bill Buckley was kind of in favor of the ERA uh, because he just, like everyone else, thought it was just reasonable and fair. You know, you had to be a curmudgeon to be against it. And and it, it, during that debate, Phyllis Schlafly said, well, if they would just have a provision that they weren't going to require that we eliminate every manifestation of difference, you know, if they wouldn't put women in combat and they wouldn't ban single-sex schools, and then... Mr. Buckley said, well, surely he said this to the woman from now. You're not going to do that. She said, yes, you know, yes, we are. And you can see he was very surprised. So this was going to be a program for radical social engineering. And, th and this was back in the 70s. I mean, these many of the women in combat, that's controversial right now. It's controversial in the military, even among and women in the military. Most of them don't want to be in combat. So it was really the women in combat issue uh, that was pretty powerful. Uh, to persuade women, what is this all about? Well, anyway, those women who lost the ERA, a lot of them retreated into their enclaves and into the universities, and they they learned a lot about organization from this campaign. They had they were they had lost, but they were uh, they had not lost their resolve, and they have been working ever since. And the, everyone else thought, okay, well, let's move on. They never moved on, and their that that kind of hardline feminism. It had it this it, this center of uh, in the universities where it has tenure. Yeah, and how does it, but how feminism was about <laughs> strengthening women or women being strong, let's say, and being treated equally, obviously. Uh, and now it's not about women. Or oh, I don't. I call it fainting couch feminism. I yeah, mean, it's Victorian, and it's it's the worldview now has become. The, you know, a kind of battle between f fragile, fair maidens, injured little birds, and then these male predators. And so it, it, it's absurd what's going and on. And do you think people believe it? I mean, I've always wondered this. I mean, do most girls, if I can use that term, young women or girls on campus, really feel that way? Or are they just ex sort of taken advantage of by mm. a few ideologues and sort of a few of them are persuaded to come demonstrate when you speak? But I mean, uh, Right. Do they really believe it? I don't think so. I think the majority of people are resilient and sensible. And you can he professors can say a lot of things and you you don't really take it seriously. Uh, however, there's a, uh, in almost every college, there's a, a small group around the Women's Center and they believe it. Uh, they believe in this, these theories about the patriarchy and, and male toxicity and so forth. And they have been empowered. I think the reason that we're seeing so much acting out now and what I encountered at Oberlin and at Georgetown at UCLA, this is happening because of a specific event, which is that in October of, uh, when I was, in 2011, I think it was April 4th, 2011, the Assistant Secretary of Civil Rights sent out the Dear Colleague letter reading colleges the riot act about the rape culture and saying you have to take draconian measures or these young women can sue and so these young women were suddenly they could be litigious 
So you add the bitterness, the false statistics, this paranoid view about the world, and you can sue for anyone who questions you. I mean, we just had a professor at Northwestern, a liberal feminist, uh, who posted an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education making fun of uh, this whole, all of the silliness about uh, trigger warnings and safe spaces and microaggressions. She made fun of it. Well, two young women at Northwestern brought a Title IX lawsuit, and her university investigated the professor for the contents of her article. And people say, oh, well, the system worked because she was she was found not guilty. No, you should not be investigated for an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education. I'm sure now I would be on, uh, constantly investigated. That's what's so striking about it. I mean, it's so contrary. It seems to me just such an obvious way to... Well, there are two things. There's the feminist side of it and then the ac academic side of it. Right. The academy. It's one thing if she were consistently giving male students A's and female students B's, then someone can legitimately complain. And uh, that is within the university's <laughs> provenance if grades are not being given right. fairly. But there's no such claim. Never, almost never is there such a claim. It's she writes an article she and you can an investigate article. people. Isn't that sort of contrary to the whole principle of the university? I mean. Absolutely. And if, if the universities are going to become, uh, in, instead of pursuing these ideals of, of free expression and the pursuit of truth, and they replace it with the pursuit of safety and you know, creating comfort zones and safety zones, uh, they, those universities will lose their reason for being. I mean, since the time of Socrates, the academy, education has been associated with, with debate and, and discussion and, and contention, <laughs> contentiousness. And without that, what do you have? Well, what you have is, uh, I don't know, these little islands of repression, as they call it. Universities are known islands of repression in a sea of freedom. Well, I think it's time to liberate these islands, but I don't know who's going to do that right now. Who has the power to challenge? Because to challenge the, uh, the sort of feminist juggernaut that exists on campus, it, it can be career annihilating. And even if you're Larry Summers, president of Harvard University, then who could be more entitled and more empowered? And he was driven out for largely because he dared to entertain the possibility that there might be some differences between men and women that could explain the, the, uh, that there are so many more men than women in, in higher education, I mean, in, in the sciences. I guess what strikes me as someone who doesn't follow this you know, one one hundredth as closely as you is feminism, which... I think I once understood sort of what the point of it was, and one could debate various aspects of it. And I mean, now it's become so complicated and confusing. Is feminism about strengthening women or about women being weak? Is it about gender really matters and we need to be serious about that? Or gender is a total invention and there's no such, the difference is arbitrary. I mean, how did that, how did that happen? And well, you're, if you're asking, is it a consistent body of beliefs? No, it is full of contradictions and confusion. And, you know, I, in principle, gender studies could have been, right. uh, in, you know, an interesting new discipline. But a new discipline, uh, to have a new discipline suggests that there is a, a methodology that would be mastered. Where is that in gender studies? Uh, it, it doesn't exist. It's just, uh, as I said, kind of a combination of, of a twisted theories, derivative theory, uh, and uh, propaganda, in my opinion. Not that there are, there's some value here and there, but overall, it, it, it has, does, has not had the benefit of criticism. Because it, you suddenly have a, 
a, a, a group of scholars, and but uh, lots of uh, types of criticism are just out of order, not permitted. And there's a system of quality control in the academy, which is, uh, peer, you know, not just it, 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 you will be criticized and you will have to give an accounting. Well, they just haven't had to do that. So for years they can go uh, on with, oh, gender is a social construction. Well, n- who thinks that? You have to have years of gender studies to believe that. Right. It's so obvious to everyone else that, not that it's purely biological, it's obviously a complicated mix of biology and and culture. But, they, you know, there's no society in the entire anthropological record where you find that the, the men are the nurturers and the women are the, are the uh, you know, soldiers. It, it, they don't exist. And, over, you know, again and again, we see that, there, that it's real. There's something, femininity and masculinity are real. And most people, not all, but most people, it, it, many of the stereotypes are true, that women do tend to be more nurturing and uh, risk-averse and uh, have usually a richer uh, emotional vocabulary. And uh, uh, men tend to be a little less uh, um, explicit about their emotions, emotionally flat, we'll say stoical to be nice. <laughs> please, please do <laughs> uh, More that. stoical, uh, more competitive, more, uh, and, and they do engage in a lot of risky behavior, for better or worse. Men tend to show up at the extremes of success and failure uh, more than women because they are some, sometimes more uh, 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 just single-minded pursuit of something, some obsessive pursuits, more likely to do that than women. But you take gender studies, and they say, oh, it's all a social construction. Unless you're gay, then they say, well, okay, that's just that's the way they are. And then if you're a trans, I don't know how they're going to account for that. And what I say, I do believe that these are legitimate human rights movements, the gay rights movement, the, 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 the trans movement. Um, but I, I don't think that f- whatever we're in, third wave, fourth wave feminism, is a legitimate human rights movement. I think that it's... Uh, just a group of people that have gone off in an extreme, and they're kind of they're pretending to be part of these other efforts, but they're not. And they're also at war with, uh, they, they say, oh, well, we're for sexual liberation, but they're not really, because if you're conventionally feminine, which many women are, or conventionally masculine, uh, then that's, they problematize that, and they, or they feel sorry for you, or they think you don't have free will. So... I mean, what's sad about gender studies, I always thought this when I was briefly in the academy, is it's a very interesting topic. I mean, it wouldn't be foolish to organize a course, and people have for decades, of course, and centuries, uh, on men and women and literature right. and history and right. women who were atypical, if you want to use this term, atypical, or, you know, and how, how, how did Queen Elizabeth or Margaret Thatcher succeed in societies that weren't friendly to them? And there are all kinds of lessons to be learned. So but, many lessons. But, but actually, there's no actual study of gender in gender studies, because if you actually studied them, you would say, all the things you just said eloquently, all of which were politically incorrect, and you couldn't say, I suppose. You Could you say it in a class? There are too many That's forbidden really, topics, yeah. too many forbidden topics, uh, and and too many sort of uh, ideological, you know, purity tests. And so you get a group of like-minded people marching in mostly sisterly solidarity. And um, it's it, and as I said, these people have tenure. And as we were talking before about the the, the culture war in the 90s, um, while we, I felt like my side uh, won the argument, and even among feminists, there were a group of us who were against Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin, and at the time, they wanted to, to censor, you know, the P- Playboy magazine and things like that. 
and we were against it, and almost everybody agreed with us. And uh, even the, at that time, uh, the, my defense of moderate feminists and questioning, they, they were talking about the rape culture even then, and there just wasn't any evidence of such a thing. And, you know, I had New York Magazine and, and the New York Times, the Washington Post, they were mostly on my side, our side of the debate. But at the same time, while we were winning these arguments, and then the media kind of got bored with the whole thing, these women were quietly assuming the assistant professorships. And so they've been training with the same textbooks that I found. They, the textbooks even became more unhinged and uh, just irresponsible, one-sided. And so you have, a, by now, the, the graduates of these programs are coming out and they're starting their blogs and you know, they have their, their podcasts and, and the journalists and they're, you know, they're busy and they're very impatient to change the society. And I don't know if people realize that they, what they learned and, and how little they understand about gender because they were, they were raised on dogma and, and ideology, not, not any real encounter with, with knowledge or with science of, of sex differences. The science on sex difference is an interesting debate right. and, and very volatile and constantly changing. And, uh, but that's not what you typically get in gender studies. No, and people like me, I've always had a tendency, well, there's a lot of silliness from the academy, but who cares? But I think there are two ways, and you've written on both, uh, in which it has an effect. One is uh, sort of freedom of speech and even of thought in the academy, especially when those same people you've described can become administrators, and then when the Obama administration hands down an edict that makes it so much easier to sue, and suddenly you have a pretty big complex, don't you, of administrators and lawyers and assistant deans and feminist exactly. pr professors That's and a few right. students who really are curtailing freedom of inquiry on they campus, are. aren't they? And I you mean, have this comment. So now you have the, the lawyers who, you know, always want to err on the side of, like, everybody just keep quiet and be as, you know, say things that are just within the range of, of approved views. But then you have these busybodies, these apparatchiks, you know, who get a salary for being busybodies and making rules and, and commissioning studies there is now a proliferation, proliferation of phony studies on abuse and how, uh, and, and, and actually there is a binge drinking culture on campus and there are sexual assaults. It is a serious problem, but it is not an epidemic uh, comparable to the war-torn Congo, but the statistics that are routinely used. Yeah, what about this one in five college, female college students have been the victims of it's sexual It's the result assault? of advocacy research. It's a result of, you can get that, you can get a very alarming finding. If you're willing to interview a non-representative sample of people, uh, and uh, if you're willing to have definitions that are very broad, that include a lot of behavior most of us don't think of as assault or certainly not criminally prosecutable assault, uh, if you just play with those things, you can get an epidemic. And that's what they do over and over again. Now the Bureau of Justice Statistics does their annual crime survey and they find one that rape, like all crimes, is way down. It's, I think, a 41-year low or something extraordinary. And uh, they also find that it's not one in four or one in five, but they, they looked specifically at the campus and found a figure something like, I don't know, one in 50. Still too much, but it is not the same. It's, it's, it's the difference between, you know, the war-torn Congo and, 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 you know, the United States. It's a huge difference. And uh, they have the best, most the best trained criminologists and statisticians, and they're, they're, they do all the proper controls. 
and uh, but their study, their their data is not taken seriously. People go for the advocacy research. And again, I saw that happening with Mary Koss. She was handpicked by Gloria Steinem, and she was a researcher. I think she was at uh, Kent State, and she did a rape study and found an epidemic, and then. That was, you know, that was her ticket. I mean, she was then at, I think, University of Arizona and called in as an expert and cited as one in four, one in four. Uh, but it wasn't until the uh, uh, assistant secretary of education sort of g gave the, the, the one in four uh, activists, now they say one in five, it gave them this tool, this uh, really they, she, she sort of weaponized their paranoia. And it seems to me when you've been attacked, the debunking of the statistics is one of the main things that offends them, right? Because that's sort of the ground, I guess, of their victimhood and their... Uh, Especially the wage gap. When I was at Oberlin, I was on, uh, lecturing, and I said at one point, you know, you could, the young women here, you want to close the wage gap? Change your major. Because women, another sex difference, despite three years of consciousness raising and, and gender neutral pronouns, women and men still major in rather different things. I mean, if you look at who are the computer science majors, physics, math, mostly guys, psychology, you know, art history, uh, early childhood education, almost all young women. And, and there are many fields that uh, were once total totally dominated by men, but women like them, and there, w there was no way to stop us, and we've taken over, like veterinary medicine, for whatever reason. And, and so when I hear, oh, well, the reason women aren't in engineering is because there's a hostile environment. Well, maybe there was a hostile environment in law and journalism. That didn't stop women. Maybe there's just not the same eagerness to be an engineer as there is to be an educator or a, a journalist, a lawyer, veteran, veterinarian, veterinarian. So anyway, uh, so at Oberlin, I just said to them, you could change your majors. And you know, if you want to earn a lot of money when you graduate, be, the, be a petroleum engineer or a yeah. naval, ar go into naval architecture or metallurgy. You should, we should have gone into metallurgy. Apparently. <laughs> a lot of money there. And someone screamed out, don't tell me what to do. You know, they were, I think they think that you should be able to major in uh, you know, feminist theater or something, and uh, earn as much as a petroleum engineer in a fair society. They, they, you know, I was not acknowledging that injustice, <laughs> and I don't. I mean, you've had such success with the, the video series, The Factual Feminist. Say, I'm going to say a word about that, but also what are the main, what are the most striking distortions for you? The wage issue, the rape question? There's so <laughs> many different areas you've taken on. This is the thing. I, I've been making these weekly videos, but five minutes, Correcting a myth once a week. We don't always manage once a week, especially in the summer, but right. the hope is that it'll be once a week. Um, and uh, at one point, my mother said, well, you're, aren't you going to run out of topics? I mean, how many myths can there be? I, I told no, her, I had the same thought when after the first dozen or so. I said, I, I could go on for years. And, and this is a bit of an exaggeration, but not much. Almost everything we think we know about men and women, about women in depression, women in the workplace, women in education, in every con every domain is false or or because these spin mistresses they they spin and it's so irritating to me why do they do that it, you know but if, if you have a very rigorous study that shows low levels of victimization they ignore it if you have the the shoddiest specious study bogus it, it goes right into the textbooks and once it's there it can't be tr corrected and there's a sociologist Joel Best that said that uh, a false statistic that 
gets into the media echo chamber can never be corrected. He said it's harder to kill than a vampire. Well, I have found that a, a, a false, you know, a feminist victim statistic, it is the hardest to kill of all. They are beyond correction. They are beyond rational analysis. So, and, and that's troubling to me as a, just as a, a philosopher, as a, as a person, that there's, it's propaganda. So you take sensitive young women, freshman year, and they want to improve the world, and, and they find out that women are being cheated out of their salaries, de denied their self-esteem, dying in droves from eating disorders caused by men, the patriarchy, toxic masculinity. They're likely to be raped, and that's if they're not already dead from uh, suicide, you know, on and on. Uh, I'm overstating a little bit, but not by much. I mean, when I first wrote Who's Told Feminism, Gloria Steinem and everyone was saying 150,000 girls die every year from anorexia nervosa. And it turned out to be closer to 500 or not, and, and I think that includes suicides. I mean, it was, it's a very small number, and it's mostly young. Uh, well, it was so wrong, uh, and I corrected it, and then I was thought to be insensitive to eating disorders. But what I always say is, no, I'm not insensitive to any of these things. I, I I'm compassionate. I care about these problems, even the, 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 certainly the, the sexual assault. But I think that victims will be helped by truth and good research. But they're not getting it because I think that these these ideologues are so carried away that they use they they will hang on so tenaciously to the propaganda because they it's in the textbooks, it's in the women's centers, it's on the posters, it's chanted at the marches. I know. I mean, the idea that the rape culture thing, I mean, I mean it's horrible, obviously, any rape and any sexual assault, unwanted uh, sexual life forced activity or anything like that, taking advantage of people. I'm against all of that, but that's why some of us are a little more puritanical than the current but, no, culture. A lot, of us, but a lot of people <clears throat> became conservative in the, I think, the, if you think back the 60s and 70s, it was liberals who were so soft on crime. Right. And people were getting out. There would be jokes, someone's going to go to jail, and he raped and murdered and so forth and oh you know he got uh, three life sentences he'll be out in 10 years I right. mean, not exactly but that that was so infuriating and there were a lot of films and things that were and, and I think a lot of people became conservative because right. the liberals were so, so now it's very odd right. that and I'm not at all sympathetic to to in criminals of any kind but well, who the are the criminals are so they're crazy, uh, they're yeah. young men and many are getting falsely accused and then taken through these kangaroo courts taken through procedures that looked like they were written by Franz Kafka, I actually became so concerned about uh, these, these, this injustice on the campus, what's happening to young men. I went back and, and, and I did, told you before, I think there's a kind of hysteria around this rape culture idea, that I went back and looked at the Salem witch trials to find out what finally stopped it. And one thing I found was that when very prominent people began to be accused, and in particular, one gentleman from Boston, he was called, a worthy gentleman from Boston, he sued. He brought a lawsuit against his accusers, and that sort of slowed it down considerably. So there are a number of people suing now. I hope it slows it down, but it's, it's awful. I mean, I expected it to just collapse on its own accord, because I was saying that these, these terrible accusations, and then you go to a campus, and you look, walk around. It doesn't look like a place where the girls think there's a one in five chance that they're going to be... What assaulted. parent would send I mean, what, a child exactly, to a college? So it, what, the whole thing, we know what a war zone looks like. Or we know what an extremely dangerous neighborhood 
let's say, when I was growing up in New York looks like, and we know what precautions people take if they have to go into such a neighborhood. And I don't really think that's what your typical You're talking Oberlin, about something Oberlin very looks different. like. And yet they kind of can say with a straight face. One, I mean, that's why I, I guess I always assumed it would just be laughed out of out of uh, court. But it, but as you say, it's a front page of the newspapers and taking it's congressional now there are testimony. There are motion pictures. There are every week another, you, you know, it, it, I think I was watch, watching Law and Order or something, and it was a date rape scenario right. and all the cliches. So it's uh, it eventually it, it has to die down because it's so destructive and it's so illiberal. And they seem to be it, it, using Title IX to, and I think they are. I think that there was a conscious decision to use Title IX to achieve their ends and to u- take it way beyond its original purpose. And, uh, but to use it to, to rescind the First Amendment yeah. and due process, and I mean, our, our sort of moral and political heritage is going to be wiped out because Title IX and the need for women to be comfortable on campus, <laughs> and not even women, it's the most neurasthenic, highly sense right. oversensitive women who feel that they they call it microaggression you know if someone would compliment you or hold a door uh, that's called benevolent sexism and it's microaggressive i mean they have this whole worldview it's so tedious and unbelievable that anyone takes it seriously and but I they guess, do and i guess on campus it's such a bubble its own world they can sort of make you take it seriously in a way that i think will be harder you in can the real be shamed world. and boys can't get dates if they don't go along with it and Fun you know so. as we know young men will often just whatever yeah, you know what am afraid, i supposed to say <laughs> and i wanted to like me so they're not going to make a fuss right. So who's, who's going to do it? Um, and now I think it's pretty scary for a professor because, and you've even seen uh, recently, I think it was Vox had a professor who wrote a, a piece anonymously that said, I'm a liberal professor, but my liberal students terrify me because they're afraid they're going to do some, say something wrong. What kind of reaction do you get to the videos and to your writings? I mean, you must get a lot of emails and communications. Are there young women saying, thank you for saying this? I oh, can't yes, say this. this is what's heartening is that um, people will say things like, I knew something was wrong and I'm so glad to see someone, you know, on my side or that, that's, you know, you've changed. And I, I'm just, I am constantly, I mean, once in a while I just get tired of it and say, Haha, I just want to be reading, I want to be a dilettante, I want to read 19th century novels, I don't want to be fighting. I didn't think this fight would last so long. Yeah. I mean, I really thought maybe I'd fix it. And I went to the American Philosophical Association, people say, oh yes, you're right, Let's let's get back on a, on a straight path and, and be accountable to reality. Well, that never happened. And others have joined me. I mean, I've had wonderful allies, but they get tired too. I mean, yeah. they, I, all along, there's Kathy Young and Katie Roythe, Camille Paglia, my heroine, mm. my my favorite of all. Um, and it's just, it never ends. One other consequence you've called attention to um, in your book and other writings is the war on boys. I mean, that there's a real, co- apart from the sort of campus insanity, there's a real consequence on boys' achievement and well-being. Yes. Uh, from the moment they, the argument yes. and <laughs> does, it, do you, does it stand up now? How long that book's a, a uh, Well, ago. I think it, it, all authors will probably say this, but I actually believe that my book is probably more relevant now than it was when I wrote it because oh. things have become a lot worse for, for well. boys and young men. The college gap has grown. Intolerance for youthful male uh, you know, just uh, liveliness is uh, very high right now. You, you, we've seen a series of cases where little boys are suspended for school for playing cops and robbers or bang, bang. I mean, so almost from the moment a, a child, a male child, enters school, um, 
he's there on sufferance because a lot of teachers have gone, maybe they've gone through schools of education where they've learned some of these theories about toxic masculinity and uh, many are unable to, and not just teachers, mothers and fathers too perhaps, are unable to distinguish between healthy rough and tumble play, which is the typical play of little boys, and aggression. Rough and tumble play involves a lot of mock fighting and you know sound effects, and uh, girls do it too, but boys do it a lot more. Typically, little girls, there's a lot of theatrical, imaginative play, playing house, playing school, teachers like that, mothers like that. The boys, it's, you're always a little nervous about it as a mother of two boys. Uh, there's a lot of uh, this, but experts on playground dynamics like Anthony Pellegrini at the University of Minnesota will tell you that this is the healthy play and boys are learning critical skills and they're also just having a lot of fun forging friendships learning limits learning who they are their place in the pecking order through that rough play well you have schools now that view it as violence and but violence is very different if boys are violent and and hostile and aggressive they're not having fun, they're not smiling and laughing. When they're rough and tumbling, boys are happy. And as I said, they're, they're, they're popular, they're forging friendships. Well, now, on many schools, you, they don't want dodgeball. I mean, they don't want right. them playing you know, games where anybody's, so it's a mix of the self-esteem movement and this fear of violence and, and punishing little boys for the crime of being a boy. Yeah, what is the effect of that? Does that have a real effect as they grow up, do you think? I mean, Well, I think that what's happened is it's probably the case that girls were always better at school and just more cooperative. As, as I said before, there is a difference. And on average, boys are less cooperative, more risk-taking, and more rule-breaking. This is true cross-culturally. There's no society that I'm aware of where you don't find more little boys will end up in the emergency room because of crazy right. antics. You have uh, more more boys who are uh, contentious, and they challenge authority more. So that's always been there. So that they would never have been able to compete probably with girls when it comes to paying attention and me. But teachers made a place for it. And the thing is, if boys weren't happy at school, there was a time where they could maybe just get a high school degree and go. And, and still, if they worked hard, they could make a very good living and you could make it into the middle class. So even though boys had a problem with school, they, they, could, they could be fine. Today, it is very difficult, bordering on impossible. To go, if you don't have education beyond high school. And increasingly, young women are getting it and young men are not. I mean, just comparatively, far more young women are getting it. Far more women in our colleges and universities, it's approaching 57, it's already 57% approaching. In some schools, they worry about tipping. They worry about so many um, women that, uh, it's not that the young men won't want to go. The young men don't mind. Yeah, <laughs> if it's that's a, so terrible. Yeah, right. 70% women, yeah. okay. Yeah, right. And they go there and have, probably have a good But the young women don't want to go there. So they, the college administrators are now practicing a kind of affirmative action for boys. But why are boys so poorly prepared? They do better on their SATs. You still find more boys than girls at the very, very high end of, you know, in math performance. Uh, it's quite a pronounced uh, difference in, in uh, male achievement there. But... Uh, boys, we, we have pretty good evidence that teachers don't like them as much, and do boys are graded down for their bad behavior. Even So you might have a child who you know is very smart and very interested in history, but he doesn't get a good grade. Be and th this has been, been researched carefully. The teachers will mark, mark a boy down academically for his comportment. Hmm. So boys, uh, there's probably grading bias against boys. 
And uh, but, but we don't have, maybe I don't want this, but we don't have men's groups or a men's lobby right. to, to compete with the women's lobby. The women have, as I said, a juggernaut. You cannot, we're trying right now, my assistant and I are trying to count up the number of groups advocating day and night for women. And what is there for boys? I mean, almost, there's a few groups, fortunately, but almost nothing. So there are, uh, once a psychologist said that in, in school today, the gold standard is, is girls, and boys are not meeting that standard. And so they're seen as sort of inadequate, failing. They don't, you know, if they're told to write stories, a little boy, there's just one example, a little boy named Jason uh, in California, or Justin, he was, I don't know, six or seven, and he wrote a story about pirates, and he illustrated it, and it was sword fights, and the teacher was very concerned and called in his parents and thought, and he was a perfectly well-behaved little boy, but her, this drawing, and the father was shocked. He said, well, he likes pirates, but there are swords, and someone's, you know, he's, he's, people are being killed. And he said, but he, and then the father asked a very good question. He, how can a teacher who has so little sympathy with my son, with his imagination, how, how is she going to be able to teach him? And, and he's just going to feel ashamed. So there are a lot of boys that are just shamed. And their parents don't realize it because they just, you know, you're, you're sort of mad at your kid. If he comes home with bad grades, you don't, it doesn't occur to you that there could be this intolerance for who he is. And this is very common. So at a time where we should be doing everything we can to improve the educational prospects of boys, we, it, we have just, uh, I think, abandoned many of them. It occurs to me we've been talking about men and women, and it's just become suddenly, this not suddenly, but the last few years, this huge political issue, the war on women, kind of amazing, in a society which has probably made more progress towards genuine equality of opportunity for women and Yeah, who's waging respect. this war? I don't understand. I mean, Republicans, women <laughs> maybe you haven't heard that. <laughs> well, Mitt, Romney, Mitt Romney personally is... Republicans is, have daughters and, and wives and a lot of Republican women. I mean, women in this society, it's so absurd to speak of women as a as second-class citizens or, uh, you know, that I mean, this was hissed and booed when I said this at Oberlin, but women are not a subordinate class. Women are better educated than men. Women live longer, probably have more choices on how they lead their lives. I don't say that as a sex, women don't face special problems and have special challenges, but so do men. So it's, it's a complicated mix of benefits and burdens, and nobody's warring against anyone. Uh, Were you so a little shocked by how that did seem to succeed? politically for the Obama campaign in 2012, I kind of dismissed it out of hand at first. And I just thought, this is ludicrous. Who's going to believe this? And then it turned out, I don't know if it, how much people believed it, but it seemed they thought it worked pretty well. I mean, and well, the, 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 is, there's a general sense because a, a lot of the information that we get about women come from the, comes from the academy. It's the brain trust, these women that I've been describing. And journalists depend on them politicians, and both Republicans and Democrats, draw on this. And so um, and, and it becomes the conventional wisdom. Women are being cheated out of more than 25% of their salary. Now, if you think about it, if you could pay a woman, you know, 25 cents less on the dollar for the same job, I mean, every competent employer would fire all the males and just hire right. females. What happens is when economists, including feminist economists, do the proper controls, you look, what did they major in in college? How many years have they been in the workplace? How many hours a week do they work? How dangerous is the job? You just look at relevant factors. The wage gap narrows to the point of vanishing. But uh, that's what, not what we're told. We're told 
it, and it kind of nurses a sense of injury in women and that someone's being bad, bad employers. So we never have an intelligent discussion. It's reduced to platitudes and then it's used opportunistically. And it's, you know, it's, it's difficult for me because it's so, seems so phony and there are a lot of good debates to have and there, and there are women's issues that should be on the table. The ones were allegedly, you know, that women are victims of a war is so absurd. I guess it's hard for individual voters to know. I mean, if that's if those are the statistics, how would they know? Would they know? It's in they the, it's they in might the know in their own case that their own employer seems to be treating people. Well, equally. they've done polls. They'll ask you, "Are you cheated out of you know?" Oh no, not me. But do you believe it's a big? Yes, it's yeah. a huge problem. So that's where we are. <laughs> this is sort of related, but uh, you become. Uh, a heroine to a group I don't really know much about, uh, the gamers, the people who play video games. Um, you didn't play a lot of video games? Uh, I, I, I played an incredibly primitive form of video game a little bit in, I guess, college and grad school. But uh, Oh, probably what I did. That's all I did. I played Pac-Man uh, and, and, and in Cambridge. Pong, I remember that. Pong, was that, right. You know, it was kind of pathetically early primitive. But now, of course, they're super sophisticated video games. They make a fortune. They're so, very sophisticated. So how did you become, how did you get involved in that? It was an accident. I was reading a poll uh, that was being celebrated in a lot of journals, uh, and particularly Salon was very excited about it, a journal I don't entirely trust, and the Daily Dot, this and that, were saying, oh, how wonderful. There's been a revolution, and the new gamers, you know, the dominant demographic is middle-aged women. And I thought, hmm, that's, as the factual feminist, I thought, well, I want to look into that because, uh, you know, I don't know any, I know a lot of women, and I don't know any that I would call gamers, although we do play Bejeweled and, (laughs) you know, Candy Crush. Uh, But what was going on? So I looked at the study. It was actually a a reasonable study done by, you know, a a business group that, that, it sells games and and what they women are playing games but they didn't make a distinction between these sort of uh, complicated video games that with consoles versus handheld you know right and um solitaire it's still the yeah <laughs> and it's still the case that males by are by and large the ones you would who become for whom it's a primary hobby i mean something they do more than if you look do you do this more than 30 hours a week and is the most important thing and these young they're not and and, and there are now there are gamers all over the world all sorts of people m- more men a small group of very cool women but a lot mm-hmm. of guys and passionate about these games and they go to you know expos and they're and they had websites where they'll debate if you know a game, you know, a new game comes out, and and they make a change. This is you know could be very controversial. They're very opinionated and passionate about this hobby, and they have a reason to be passionate because they've always been disapproved of. Their mothers didn't like it typically, and their teachers. And then every time there's a mass killing or something, they go, "Oh, it was a video games, video games." Fact is, no one has ever been able to show a connection between video games, even the violent shooter games, and becoming violent. There are a lot of well-adjusted people who enjoy the thrill of Grand Theft Auto. And Grand Theft Auto, it, it looks horrible, but it's meant to be a parody. It's sort of a crazy... Uh, extremely sophisticated. I, w- I looked at it for three minutes extremely in, in the office, sophisticated. So I was just curious. I mean, it's very high-quality. Inter- I mean... And they're very hard. Yes. And so it's challenging. It, they're right. very challenging. And in fact, I now that I have this following among gamers, they're very smart and tech savvy, and they're and they're artists. And it, it's one of the most 
talented group of people I've ever encountered and, and nice and friendly. And we've had some meetups and we had one in Washington and, and just as diverse as you can imagine. And I mean, more males than females, certainly, but you know, they're different races and social classes. But what unites them is this passion for games. And it is mostly males that that play the most popular games. And you exposed this? Is that what well, you, what how I, did you become their heroine? I just made a video saying that I did not think that I, a middle-aged woman, was the dominant market for games. I said, you know, I might like a game about D- Downton Abbey or right. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, but... Uh, and then I did look at the games, and I didn't like the look of them. Um, they were they were too violent. And I wouldn't play them, but I don't I don't like Breaking Bad. It was too violent, and it, it was very irritating to my sons. I I couldn't watch The Sopranos. I just don't right. like that. But I do not think that because someone watches Breaking Bad, they're going to become meth dealers and and sh- you know sh- shooting the people. And and there's just no evidence that playing these games does that. It's just really it's fun. And and as I said. They're very challenging. These young, these these people that play them, the skills and the imagination, the strategy—it's it's many different levels, and it's hard and impressive what they do, and they love it. Well, what happened was this celebrating women is that a group of cultural critics, the sort of people who've been marching through our universities, gender studies or cultural studies majors, set their sights on. Well, they chose the wrong crowd. They chose the gamers. And gamers know a thing or two about they like to win. And they started an argument with them and said that your games are sexist and misogynist. And, misogynist and you have, irres- you know, women are irresponsibly proportioned. Now, it is mostly guys who play the game. They, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them like sexy women. So there's sexy women in them. They'll say, well, women are, there's violence to women. Well, there's vastly more violence to men, and you usually get punished if there's violence to women. And if there's violence to women at all, it's usually is a, uh, gives a motive to the, the protagonist to go on, you know, and, and take revenge or something, because there are these, stu- so it's, it's an innocent pursuit, and they're having fun, and now they're, suddenly they're getting these, you know, gender studies majors telling them your games are, uh, you know, treating women as the other and and all this is happening where the world of games is exploding and there are games uh women-centered games and there are female heroines they're still not happy with that the female there's a female heroine i like bayonetta who's sort of awesome and and uh but she's sexy they don't like the fact that she's sexy they said oh it's still catering to the male gaze and then i asked myself like What's wrong with the male gaze? If I mean, gaze, G-A-Z-E. G A Z E. G A Z E. Yeah, be there for moments. Like, I don't no, <laughs> there's a whole thing that oh, it's objectifying women's bodies. Well, that's part. That's a healthy part of male sexuality. They do rather like women's bodies. Most men, and even gay men, like men's you know mm-hmm. men's bodies. They, there is a lot of gazing going on in gay culture. It's part of sexuality. So here we have this movement, and why I say the contradictions. It's supposed to be celebrating people's sexual freedom except that of heterosexual men. Suddenly that is being pathologized and treated as, you know, something toxic and dangerous that must be policed. So they came to police the gamers. Well, the gamers fought back. And they don't always play by the Marcus Queensberry's rules, but what happened is there were then, it got uh, out of hand because the gamers were accused of making death threats. Well, no one has ever been able to show that any person identified with Gamergate as the group became known as hashtag. Mm-hmm. No one has been able to show. And what the, what the press leaves out 
is that the people defending the gamers have been threatened about as much. There's a lot of, it's the internet, okay? There, there are crazy people. But at the core, you have gamers who love their hobbies. They were fed up with what they thought was corruption in the gaming press. I don't completely understand that, but I can imagine. And they were fed up with these kind of cultural authoritarians coming in and bossing them around. Many of them, I will say, are politically pr probably lean left libertarian. But what happened is when these these uh, critics came in and these 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 uh, scolds, they kind of awakened this sleeping giant because the ga their gamers are everywhere. They're all over the world, they're, and they love their hobby. And they knew this was false. They knew, and so they rebelled and they uh, you know started madly creating. I mean, they're very creative. They can, in a minute, they can come up with with a, a joke a video or they, they, they give lectures. They, they, they're constantly fighting and they organized around this hashtag Gamergate. And they, they give, they're prone to some conspiracy theories and it, it's just fun. They're fun, they're, they're amusing and smart. Uh, and then they keep getting attacked, savage, by the New York Times or the Washington Post. And uh, they, they're uh, said to be a, a misogynist horde well, in this misogynist horde, you have a lot of women, you have gay guys, you have, you have the, it's, it's a consumer uprising against cultural authoritarians. And I, I love it because it's the first group that I saw fight back against yeah. all the things we've been talking about. They're not afraid. Uh, and they've been through a lot of battles before because as I said, if you're a gamer, your mom probably didn't like it, your teachers didn't, authorities thought it was problematic. So they're, they don't like critics that come along uh, with evidence-free theories about how bad they are, and they are feisty. Can some of that spirit of rebellion come to the campuses or come more broadly to the culture? This is what I'm culture? hoping, because what I found is these militant, uh, ill-informed, dogmatic feminists, they've, they have uh, brought a lot of acrimony and bitters into the world of, a lot of worlds where you have more men than women, like libertarians, there are more men than women. Uh, atheists, the atheist community has just been split because these bitter women came in and, and made trouble and made all sorts of unfair attacks. And, the, and, and they did it to scientists, they did it in, to sports. Well, the gamers were the first group that I think really fought back. But they know a thing or two about, uh, you know, going after a monster. <laughs> and as I said, they like to win. So it wasn't, wasn't the right group to pick a fight with. So it's still going. And they're as... Uh, you know, as they're they're determined, uh, and I think they are making a difference. And I think they're sort of showing other subcultures and hobbies uh, that you can you can be a you know a good person. I I, f I find most of them very fair-minded. They they and, and oh, and the reason they like me is I said, look, I'm an equality feminist. I'm but you don't have to be a a hardline fainting couch feminist or whatever they are. And they like that. They like because they do think that they believe in equality. They, most of them are not misogynists. They didn't. They don't see. They're young. They're young men. Many in many cases who've been brought up. They're the most open-minded generation. You don't see more misogyny uh, with the the rise of video games. You see less. You see less violence with the, So, I've tried to make videos that made that clear. And they so now they call me based mom, mom being mom and based is a means. I think it means sort of cool or B A S E D. B A S E D. Based I'll have to mom. Check. I wasn't aware of that slide. Yeah, That's a good you're with based mom here. They, I'm so. impressed. Well, and uh, now uh, I'm, I have a lot of followers on Twitter, and I, sometimes if someone criticizes me, I'm afraid to forward it because they will go to great lengths to to defend base mom. So unless it's someone more powerful than me, if they're if they're 
uh, you know, uh, just someone doesn't know, you know, unknown. I won't mention it because the the gamers, you know, will will start. I mean, they're they're polite, but they'll be. Well, they should become, go after people in power because that's it would be a healthy kind of citizen rebellion against all these cultural authorities. It's a citizen rebellion. It's a consumer uprising yeah. against cultural authoritarians, and the gamers have done it better than any group I've seen. On that note of hoping the gamers inspire the rest of America, (laughs) thank you, Christina, for spending this time here on Conversations, and thank you for joining us.